Union Jack, the home of great British comedy. Fiddle your knob and find Union Jack on DAB Radio, online, on the app, and on that Alexa woman. And then what happened was I started climbing up onto an elevated platform to dance, mostly because I needed the space. Anyway, then I got I got spotted one night at the Ministry of Sound, and a guy said, "Do you, do you want to be one of our dancers?" And I went, "No." And he went, "Yeah, go on." And I went, "Yeah, all right, brilliant." And that was it. So for a couple of years, off and on, I was a dancer. On digital radio across the UK, on the Union Jack app, and on that Alexa lady. This is Jeff Lloyd's hometown glory. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. Hello, hello, welcome once again to Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio and very warm welcome to you if this is your first time here. This is the third series where I take well-known faces on a wander down memory lane and so far this series I've spoken to Ed Gamble, Paul Young, Ian Lee, Susie Ruffle, Tom Rosenthal, all of which uh, are available wherever you got this from as a podcast. But right now we will be spending the next hour with broadcaster, writer, comedian and owner of a fine, a, a luscious full beard Marcus Brigstock Jeff Lloyd's hometown glory on Union Jack Radio Marcus Brigstock hello hello mate how are you I'm I'm, I'm grand it's weird seeing you in a radio studio because uh, every, every year I see you in a radio studio in Love Actually yeah and yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. seems like this odd <laughs> blip in your career it's not really something it's amazing what an amazing thing yeah. to sit opposite Bill Nye for a, for a day and then again Last year when we did the sort of, oh, of Love Actually yeah, reloaded yeah. Uh, thing. Yeah. It was great. And it's a funny film, that one, because it's it's become a cult classic over the years. I think at the time, you know, people went and see it, so it was a nice bit of schmaltz. Yeah. And people, I think, enjoy watching it a little bit ironically every it's, Christmas It's now. despised and adored in equal measure. Yes. There's a sort of Often hurricane. by the same people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a hurricane of hatred that goes online every year. And, and usually I manage to resist it. And I don't get involved. And then occasionally I'll make a spirited defence of the whole film because uh, Richard Curtis is the is maybe the only human being I've met, only adult I've met, who literally has no cynicism in him. Like, none. He can be very snarky and sarcastic and, and dry and all the rest of it. But when he says you know, at the beginning, love actually does exist. And those messages from the planes as they went into the Twin Towers, which is very, you know, people found that very too glib and upsetting and stuff. He completely means it. Mm. He means every bit of it. And when the kid runs into the airport at the end and and slides under the thing and gets away with it, people are like, this is ridiculous. And the man who shows up at the bride's, you know, at Kira Knightley's door and stuff. Richard... Just has love. Just it just pours through him in the so most he, he, beautiful way. So he doesn't understand that it's creepy to turn up at somebody's door like that while I the think, husband is I upstairs. Know, I think he totally gets it. But I think I think his position. I think I don't want to speak for him because I've no idea, frankly. But from the bit that I know him, I think his position is love will make you do this. Love will make you creepy. It's made me creepy loads of times. <laughs> loads of times, not that creepy. But you know, so he's completely. 
uncynical and he also was not try even though it's cast with the cast it, it is and it's Christmassy and it's got the music to help it along and stuff he wasn't trying to write a big hit he was trying to write something that reflects how he feels and the same with uh, he did a film called About Time uh, about the relationship fundamentally between a son and his dad and how to let that go and it's about grief and fascinating but again love just pours through it and I actually I went to see that one with my dad which is quite weird I was sitting next to Rufus Hound and his dad and I was there with my dad that was the nature of the invitation and it's it's quite a beautiful film very emotional and um, at the end like Rufus and his dad leapt up and like hugged each other and there were tears and dad and I kind of went well I thought that was good actually I thought it was pretty pretty decent and then and then dad was yakking away to someone as we left. I was talking to someone else. And as we walked out, dad said, that was a very nice chap. I know I've met him somewhere before. Um, I can't remember where. Anyway, it was Jason Donovan. Amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. So has your dad ever said, I love you to you? Yes. Yes. Oh, well, there we go. That's, that's very something. much so. Yeah, very much so. And, and, and actually, I think that that represents, that represents quite a huge leap for for his generation of posh English men, mm. that's a great big thing, and he's really good at hugging as well. And, and is that a recent development? Well, it's it's it, I I guess it's sort of within my adult life. I did a show many many years ago where I got two men up uh, in the show and got them to hug, and inevitably the two men hit each other on the back. And there was it was a whole routine built around it about how the hitting is is sort of I'm I'm a bit in control of this hug, uh, this is a hug, but I could also hurt you, <laughs> all of this stuff, you know. And I think Dad saw that, and so we laughed about it a lot afterwards. And when we'd when we'd hug, he'd say, um, "No, I mustn't hit you, must I?" <laughs> you know. So uh, yeah, no, he's he's great, my dad. You know, we we get on actually, we get on better and better. As you get older, yeah. As we get older, so so where were you born then? What's the name? Which, I, which hospital were you born in? Oh, um, it was in Guildford. It is amazing to me how many people don't know which hospital they were born in. Like I will, if, if I'm ever in Manchester, I will take people and say, "That's where I was born." There should be a that's, blue plaque. That's the very yeah. room. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it might be a place called Mount Alvernia right. in Guildford. But, I'm, but I could be wrong about that. Your mother ever commented on whether it was a difficult birth or not? Yes. Oh, so much. Oh, really? I took 10 months to cook. <laughs> really? You were a late ten, baby? 10, not 9, yeah. Mm. My sister was a 10 as well. Um, and where, where do you sit in the, the order of siblings? So obviously middle child. Right. You? Uh, eldest. Eldest. All yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, Good. Yeah. Of how many? Of three. All right. Yeah, yeah I'm middle of, middle of three. Um... Yeah, I'm pretty sure Mount Alvernia in Guildford. Okay, and and the, the the home you went back to the first house you remember first being house there. was a place called Finch's Acre uh, in Elsted in Surrey. And what do you do? You have any memories of it? Yeah, it was fat. The house was fat, and I, because it was completely covered in ivy. And uh, the ivy would get so thick that the house literally looked like it bulged. Because it thinned out near the top un- under the edge of the roof and obviously down towards the bottom it was a bit thinner. So the house, my memory of it is almost a, I'm sure it wasn't, but almost a green sphere. Right. We basically lived in a sort of James and the Giant Peach kind of house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what were your parents doing for a living at that time? Mum was a head teacher of a nursery school, which was 
next door to the house. So and and they'd sort of done it that way so that the kids could use the garden as an outdoor play space. My mum was a brilliant, brilliant head teacher, really great. Um, so yeah, so the kids would all come and play and be outside as much as possible in our garden. Uh, which was probably weird for me, but I don't have any memories of being particularly you jealous. Would, <laughs> you probably would have just liked it. Yeah, just loads time. of yeah. loads of kids. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I went to that school, so my mum was the headmistress. But I have very few memories of that. Very few. And what, what about your dad? What was your dad doing for a bit? Dad worked for uh, a company called BZW. And they they did something clever in the city. Were you one of these people who didn't ever really understand what their dad did for a living? I think in the seventies, no one knew what their dad did unless their dad did a job job. So like, my dad was a postman, right? Okay, so, so you I knew could, what your dad yeah, did because, because I get post lot, came to your house. Yes, I'd get to go in the post office van, uniform. Uh, he'd have a uniform. I'd get a lot of Great. elastic bands. Did you go in the post office van? Yeah, I think to, I'd have loved. That. He used to pick me up from school in the post office van, but I would have to lie in the back with the mail in case yeah. his bosses saw him. Him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but th- I guess there would be no fringe benefits. Jeff, get down, yeah, get it down. Was, it was exactly that. But a dad working for BSW. The, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, no, no, no. Benefit, I didn't no know. I didn't know. I had no idea what he did. I do know that that when I was very young, he had a a white van with no seats in the back. And in those days, you know, we'd th- they'd think nothing of that. Was the most fun we could have was being in the back of that and get- getting him to go round corners so that we were flung against one wall or the other. This is long before seatbelts were introduced by those <laughs> by those meddling lifesavers in Europe, <laughs> if it was even them. So, did, yeah. do you get the impression your dad had just always wanted a van? Then <laughs> he might he might deep down have always wanted a real job. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure why he had a white van, actually. I should ask him, how on earth did you end up with that? I know he used, to, I know he worked for Shell before that, like for the actual garage forecourts of Shell. And I think he did something, it was maybe before I was born, like actually going to the forecourts and something. I mean, it sounds like a vehicle that could be used for armed robberies. Have you? He might have simply been that? an armed robber. I mean, you know, he worked in the city, so in a way, what's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> and and when you think of being very young, like, so what? Who who is around? Did you do you have pets? Are there aunties? Are there uncles? Are, uh, yeah, around? we had a dog, um, a Tibetan terrier, which is one of those very furry things, and you genuinely, if it was still, you you couldn't tell which way it was facing. Wow. It was only when it moved. Yeah. Like, Aha, front. <laughs> <laughs> and and what's your relationship with animals like as an adult then? I've got a chameleon. You uh, have a chameleon? I have a chameleon called Roy. Yeah, yeah. He's beautiful. He's so beautiful. How much was it, does it does he roam for is he a free range chameleon? He's no, I mean uh, he can wander around the house, that's all fine during the day, but he's quite clumsy. Uh, for an arboreal creature, he's quite clumsy. But I think, you know, my house isn't a tree. Not yet. Um, uh, so my you house. You grew up in a bush. Yeah, yeah. My house has, you know, painted, you know, painted shelves and stuff like that. And actually, chameleons are not that good at gripping painted surfaces. But it feels like a tree branch to him. So he'll always be on the edge of it. 
So when he's loose around the house, I get very, very nervous. Would it ruin my mental image of what a chameleon does if I saw the chameleon around you? I'm guessing he's not changing colour to the colour of the shelves. No, they change. They change according to their mood. There are some that will blend with their background for disguise, but mostly it's it's mood. So, and I really like that, and I wish that humans did the same. Like it would make courting so much simpler. Just like, well, she's red and orange. She's definitely receptive. No, she's turned dark green. No good. No good. Uh, oh, look at that. That guy's gone a kind of uh, soft, peachy grey colour. He's very content right now. Yeah. This makes me think that we're not done evolving. We are not done evolving. We could we could so do with some chameleon skills. And he's, I mean, I've had Roy for two years uh, he's named after Roy from the Fast Show. Do you remember Roy and Reenie? Yes, go, yes. Uh, yeah, it's John Thompson every, and Carolina. Every time we fly, I, every time we go on holiday, I always say, we'll have to fly. What do I say, Roy? We'll have to fly. Uh, so he's named after that Roy because I so loved that couple. They were so brilliant. And I've yeah. told John Thompson this. And he's like, really? You've got a chameleon named after me? <laughs> yeah, in a way, John. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I love animals. My brother and sister-in-law have got a dog and uh, I love looking after it, but I'm not sure yet I'm a dog person. That's interesting that you grew up with a dog and you might not be a dog person. Well, I am fundamentally a dog person. I mean, I can tell you for sure I'm not a cat person. Cats baffle me. I really like them, but I don't think they should have anything to do with people. I think they should just be their own thing. They're far too independent. You're advocating some kind of apartheid. Very much so. And that's what cat owners like about their cats. You know, they like the aloofness and the distance and how well they game human beings and stuff, whereas I like absolute dumb loyalty. So yeah. I'm definitely a dog guy. I think what is going on with people emotionally that they would feel comfortable with an animal that treats them like that? I know, it's really odd, isn't it? It is very odd. And the anthropomorphization of cats baffles me entirely. The, sort of, the, 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 the way people are obsessive about it on the exactly. internet and they project moods onto it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, 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 he's saying, he's saying, I want this. He's not. No. He's lying completely still. Well, the the old thing I can't remember where this is from, but the, the old thing people say the difference between cats and dogs is you you drop dead, that dog will sit by your corpse until it drops dead. Yeah. Within an hour, the cat would be eating you. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. And I think that's why uh, I think that's why I'm a dog person. Roy, if I drop dead, would also die. So I quite like this sort of <laughs> simpatico nature of of Roy. He might sort of walk across my face, mm. attempt to lift an eyelid. He's got incredible hands. Like his hands fascinate me. They're, they're, it's like he's wearing little mittens. So um, oh, he's he's wonderful. Have you ever Brings held hands a with a lemur? I've never held. There's I'd love to hold hands with it. Have you? To have, yeah. It's like it's like they have the softest gloves you've ever ever touched. Oh, it's a beautiful thing to hold hands with a lemur. Marcus. I, I put it on your bucket list. Yeah. Um, what They're about- so limmy. Mm. Aren't they lemurs? So like amazing Limmy. long arms yes. and legs and. Yeah, they're incredible creatures. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. Back to this house you grew up in. Yes. Music, was music a a part of it? Well, my dad had two tapes in the car, Parallel Lines by Blondie and The Best of Johnny Cash. So these are are good, this is is good tapes. It's only two tapes, but they're good tapes. This was really good. Um, At home, there was Boney M and ABBA, which I loved at the time. And now I can't, I mean, I, 
I can respect Abra at a distance, but I can't. I really can't bear them. I, I can't. I so, cannot bear the what, songs. What's your beef with Abra then? Nothing, because they're perfect pop songs. They're so brilliant. They're beautifully written, incredibly performed, and perfectly produced. And they, I just can't. I mean, there is a specific one with Dancing Queen, which is that at every party where that's played, everybody gets up the moment it's going, and up they get. And then as soon as they're on their feet, they remember, you can't dance to Dancing Queen. (laughs) Because it's not any good to dance to. Abba are one of those bands like, like, like the Beatles. They're, they're, they're you know, some of the best music in the pop music canon, yeah. but both bands quite difficult to dance quite to. Quite difficult to yeah. dance to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Waterloo's quite good for pointing, for a pointy <laughs> dance. Da, da, da. You know, you can do a big point and charge across the dance floor and stuff. But I think Dancing Queen's like that classic, maybe late 70s thing of one foot behind the other dancing. You can kind of, but it's really slow. Now, you said something I know about you is you are a good dancer. You worked as a dancer. I did work I, as a I dancer. I am somebody, I, yeah. I have no dancing ability at all. Somebody once said to me, I dance to the lyrics. Um, and to the, mel- I, to the melody, oh, not to the beat. But that does not make you a bad dancer. I think that's fascinating. <laughs> I love watching people who dance to the lyrics, you know. I mean, I now, I'm 46 now, and I'm still trying to dance to uh, the offbeat and like little polyrhythms that I create within my own head. Because I what a polyrhythm is. I used to be able to do that. It was like counter rhythms and stuff like that, you know, uh, that's not, that's not always dancing on on the beat. So I was brief. I should explain. I was briefly a podium dancer. So when I was seventeen, I went into rehab, and I more than halved my body weight in seven months. I was twenty four stone. Seven months later, I was eleven stone. Right, and it felt incredible, right. just amazing. And uh, so I didn't drink and I didn't take any drugs, but I loved going out dancing because my body was like a gift. It was like this brand new thing. So I loved dancing and I loved taking up a lot of space dancing, right? Because it just felt so good to be me. Limmy is what I was. I was a bit like a lima. I was very limmy. And um, yeah, dancing just felt so great. And I was surrounded by people taking speed and ecstasy and all the rest of it, and they were off the list for me. So I just danced loads, you know, and it, yeah, it was an amazing time. And and then what happened was I started climbing up onto a, an elevated platform to dance, mostly because I needed the space, because it was this great, big, joyful celebration of a thing. And if I didn't have the space, I'd sort of slap into people. Flailing around. I was never yeah. into the, like, dancing tight thing, you know, looking down. So it you was, never did the indie disco, no, hands no. in the cardigan pocket No, dancing. it was always, I mean, if my hands were ever below my shoulder level, something had gone wrong with the wow. music. Everything was up, up, up. Very camp, hugely camp. And lots of, this is end of the 90s, so... Voguing wasn't, sorry, beginning of the 90s. So voguing wasn't really the thing, but it was part of how everybody danced then. Great big kind of expressive things, you know. And uh, God, I loved it. Anyway, then I got I got spotted one night at the Ministry of Sound and a guy said, um, do, you, do you want to be one of our dancers? And I went, no. And he went, yeah, go on. And I went, yeah, all right, brilliant. And that was it. So for a couple of years, off and on, I was a dancer. So it's fascinating to me that this happens in sobriety as well. 
Yeah, well, that was, but that was why it was this, it was this new body thing. And I really like the amount of energy I had. So bear in mind, I was very young when I got sober. So like 18, 19 years old. So I had a lot of energy anyway. And my body was just like a wire. And I was eating incredibly healthily, but I could easily, and I did, go to ministry. We'd go to another club first about 10, 11-ish, go into ministry at one in the morning. And this is when Ministry of Sound had no liquor license anyway, right? And it was amazing. Then People just went for the, for the music. I mean, I think most other people were probably taking drugs, I assume. Um, <laughs> the music and the drugs. Yeah, the music and the drugs. But, uh, you know, and then we'd go in there at one in the morning and leave at seven or eight. And I really, I never stopped that Do time. you still enjoy to dan- enjoy dancing? Yeah, I like it, but I'm I'm heavier at the moment. I'm not big, big, but heavier, and it's a bit uncomfortable. So you look, and- so you look like a very slender man, which suggests to me that the 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 stuff you had around food, when yeah, you're young yeah, is something you grapple with. Yes, yeah, oh man, that, yeah, it's so annoying. Like drugs and alcohol. I've been sober for twenty. I'll be twenty nine years sober this year. Uh, but food, you can't just stop. You have to eat three times a day. So if you're compulsive around it, that means you're sitting down with something that's provoking you three times a day. And that's just, uh, that is hard. And also, it's so difficult because I'm sober. And yeah. So I don't drink, and I've got a rule in my head: I don't yeah. drink. And th- th- I'm not saying it's easy, and it, I think like no, I have an easier time of it than it other people. Simple. But it is simple. But yeah. you you have to eat. So yeah. what? But do, can you? And food is also, you know, food is one of the very first expressions of love between a mother and a child. Right. Right. So both breastfeeding and then weaning, all of that comes with uh, close associations with love, and then. Solid food comes with approval, you know, eat up, mummy or daddy made this for you, what a good boy, doesn't he eat well, all of those kinds of associations. So it's not surprising that a lot of people with issues around addiction, if you scratch the surface, drugs and alcohol, if you scratch the surface about what happened before, there will usually be some food issues in there. Whether they're as bad, like mine genuinely nearly killed me. It was as bad as that. It was like way, way, way off the charts. But there are really strong associations between food and love, which most people sanely grow out of. That's the reasonable way to behave. Um, But if you develop a dependency on it, then those, those messages get, dangerously reinforced just by your own behavior. So, so can food bring you any joy? Oh yeah, massive amounts of joy. The trick for me is in enjoying food and I particularly enjoy sharing food with people and enthusing about food. Uh but recognizing when food is a, is a legitimate celebration and when food is mostly a comfort. And it's actually, it's probably a comfort for me more often than it's, than it's just even or nothing. I never, I'd say I never eat for fuel. Right. Never. Never. Like my fiance does. She's, she's for fuel. I mean, she loves food. She finds delicious food delicious. And then she's like, yeah, I'm full now. So I'm stopping. I'm like, but. There's stuff on the plate. But there's more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And so for me, like I, even with stuff I don't particularly like nothing gets left. Yeah. And if we're sitting opposite each other and you leave food on your plate, I can't hear you. It's the I literally it, cannot yeah. hear you. I'm like, it's like 
not always, but very often it's like the food is screaming to me. Like, that's, that's going to waste. That's just sitting there. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. This is Union Jack, a radio station that celebrates the best of British. The soundtrack to an NHS nurse driving a red bus to Arthur's seat. And it sounds like this. Union Jack is the one for me. Watch on. He's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy! Union Jack Radio is like being smacked on the bottom. Tell a friend and spread the word. Union Jack, a radio station playing the best of British. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. At what point did your relationship with food become dysfunctional? When I was... Um, well, probably about eight, seven or eight. So I what, would was, say. what was going on? We, we, you'd gone to school. Well, by this before stage. then, yeah. So before then I'd had like undiagnosed celiac disease. So I was dangerously underweight. So the, these messages about, um, how much me eating met with approval were amplified by having some problems with that. Then they kind of evened them, themselves out. When I started, school at seven so you know I'm a posh boy and I went to boarding school when I was seven when I started school at seven my weight and my food were normal-ish but that was also the time in my life where I was less watched around food and there was more food to have because most kids don't like school meals you know they weren't particularly great school meals so there was a lot of food around if you were inclined you could eat a hell of a lot of food and I ate a hell of a lot of food. And I went, I mean, I started gaining weight within about a year of being there. So when I was about eight or nine, by the time I was 10, it was noticeable and problematic. And by the time I was 11, I'm sort of approximating these ages, but by the time I was 11, it was a source of shame to me that I felt out of control, that I was the fat kid and, you know, when you're 11, 12 and just hitting puberty, if you're a boy and you've got breasts, which I did have, not cool. Yeah. Really difficult. And, you know, and then, of course, the shame you feel and the embarrassment and the exclusion by being easily the fattest kid in the school means that you're sad. And so you go to the place where comfort is. And then you try and take back control. So then you don't eat at all for a day. And then your brain and body goes into panic and then you hit it even harder again. And, you know, that these are quite normal addictive cycles. But by the time I was sort of eight or nine, it was already badly out of control. And, you know, my parents were really trying to help. They kept, they tried everything within their reach. So how, how often, when, you, when you're at boarding school, it's not a world yeah. I know a great deal about. Yeah, yeah. How, how frequent is the contact with your parents? Um, so... We would have visits on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, so my parents would come on a Saturday afternoon and we'd have a sort of picnic in the boot of the car. Um, and most parents came to see their kids in sports matches. But when you're the fat kid, that's not good. <laughs> and when, you know, addiction and the rest is starting to make the week at school bad as well. Like it was bad results and bad sport. And then all I wanted to do was eat when they came. So the Saturday afternoons were pretty miserable. Um, 
And then she, my sister, who's older than me, went to boarding school a bit later on. So then it was a bit more divided because, like, going to see her on a Saturday or going to see me. So there were blocks of time there where I didn't see my parents for a couple of weeks. And, of course, in those days, uh, there was like there was one public payphone in the school. You couldn't get an incoming call because what are you going to do? Like, where's Brigstock? Yeah. Well, we don't know. Anywhere, you know. Um, going through other people's tuck boxes. I mean, it really was the full Billy Bunter. Um, and you might try and make an outgoing call, but that, it was difficult. So contact was all broken up. How how did you go about sort of establishing who you were in the in the order of things at school? Yeah. Well, I was funny, right? I was funny. So um, you you were light, even though there's this sort of ridicule yeah, about your body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, no, you I were was liked. liked. Yeah, I was. Um, and, and then, and then profoundly disliked, but, but with the ability to make friends with people again, you know? So I had little gangs that I belonged to as most people did. I wasn't isolated, not by any stretch of the imagination. And I, and I had a laugh. I felt sad a lot of the time, definitely. And I did very badly. You know, I was expelled three times and, you know. Because of poor results or behaviour? Mixture of stuff. So I was first expelled uh, when I was seven. I burnt down the goalposts on the football pitch. I, 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 my memory of it is that I didn't like football, but I don't think that was really it. I think, truth be told, they were made of wood because it was the 70s. And, um, and I built a small fire round the bottom of one of the posts. So you made a pyre of some sort. I made a pyre and burned <laughs> down the football posts. And uh, that mixed with me just not doing well meant that they... I think, I guess it was an expulsion, but I think it was more a sort of, we think it might be better if Marcus moved on. And when you did that, do you, how much of it do you think in your head you were just thinking, oh, I've, I've learned that um, wood is flammable and how much do you think there was something else there's going a lot, on? No, there's a lot of wood is flammable. Yeah. So I was a curious kid and I'm a curious adult. I'm curious about things. And I, the upside of that is I'll give most things a go without much fear. That's also an entitlement thing that, it's why it's why people like me are so dangerous in politics. Uh, this disconnection with the real world, and also a kind of just a general sense of uh, what is it, foreign secretary? Okay, yep, I'll give it a go. Because why would you not? Right. Because that's that. It's just what's reinforced, and you know when you talk about reinforced, what you imagine maybe is someone saying, "Now listen, you chaps are rather special, and there's nothing you can't do." It's not that. It's the whole world you live in. It's, uh, so, Brigstock, what do you want to do? Don't know, sir. Well, then try this. And right. so you just end up, and that, that's kind of a repeated thing, and, I, and it is really, I mean, it's so dangerous that there are so many privately educated people in Westminster because it's, it's not the like same. It's something like 6% to 7% of people in the population are privately yeah, educated, yeah. and it's, it's over 50% per Yeah, yeah, way over. Yeah. And, you know, and especially boarding school educated from the age of seven, um, it's not, these are not bad people. It's really important. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not a bad guy. And by the way, my parents are wonderful, kind, loving, generous people who gave me what had been given to them without any knowledge of like, well, what, what else might there be? And they wouldn't even have known, I think, how to navigate a, a different path in the same way that someone who's never been to a private school or a boarding school might look at it and feel like, 
what's that mountain? You know, um, so, and my parents also like, even when, and I was wild for a while there, like they never gave up on me or deliberately kept me at a distance. They just did what their, their tribe did, you know? Um, so, but school, it, it was mostly a good laugh. Right. You know, it was a good laugh. I did have a good time. I mean, that's, that's it just seems counterintuitive. Like you yeah. had this difficult time with food and body issues. You had yeah. these behavioural issues. You said you felt sad a lot of the time. Yeah. Well, profoundly sad. Yeah. And it, but that that could be very sudden, you know. So I was very good at jollying along and finding my people and making things happen. And then and then suddenly sort of crashing really into quite deep sadness, probably largely around around food. I mean, anyone who's had any issues with addiction will know that the promises you make to other people about how you're going to behave are painful to break, right? So I promise I'll get my act together and then you don't. It's embarrassing and stuff. But they are as nothing compared to lying in bed at night, having stolen from people you love, to support your addiction, which most addicts will end up doing, behaved in ways that you are that are outside your your value system. You know you've done this, right? Whatever it may be. And you lie in bed and you think, all right, well, today I ate from a bin. Ish. That's not good. That's bad. Okay. I'm glad that's happened. Because now I'm done. That's it now. I'm done with this. From tomorrow morning, that's it now. All this, like, that's it. I'm not stealing anymore. I'm not going to eat disgusting food that other people have left anymore. I'm not going to lie about it, and I'm going to be thin, and that's it tomorrow morning. But what happens is you wake up the next morning, and you're still wearing the same skin. And before breakfast, it's already gone off the track, because if you could do it on your own, you would, right? And you can't. That's what being an addict is. So you can't do it until someone shows you how not to. And the point for me about the sadness was that I broke my promise to myself every single day, again and again and again and again. And that's what most addicts are are needing to act out on, in my opinion. You know, it, it's not it's not one terrible thing that happened to them. Like my choice to overeat at school was a good one. I was sad. It's a bit lonely. I found a way of not being sad. That's a good choice. Yep. Sensible. The fact that it nearly killed me, I couldn't possibly have known that. Yeah. You know. So and it's it's helpful for me to know all of that as an adult, especially someone who still finds food and eating a bit difficult. It's like, this is not a bad choice. And do you do any kind of support group specifically around eating? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah, that's lots. that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's the, 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 the shame between what what you do and think privately. Yeah, yeah, of course. What people expect and know about you publicly. I'm not yeah. talking about you as a, a comedian. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just mean yeah. as an individual. Anyone. That's what your family don't know about you and then what you know about yeah. yourself. And the gap between the two, those two things and the groups, I think any kind yeah. of support group, it, Absolutely. it closes that gap. Yeah, and when you, know, when you sit in a room with people who identify before they do anything else as being the same as you in that regard, then it's a huge relief and you don't, there's there's no need to pretend about one thing or another. And there are just things that are understood, you know, especially if you end up with body image issues. Like, for example, I can wear a pair of jeans on a Monday 
and feel great. You know, when you leave the house, you're like, all right, I feel pretty, no, but <laughs> pretty great, you know? Yeah. Like, this is all right. I feel, yeah, put the same jeans on the next day and you're like, these are so tight and I just, I'm disgusting and I don't, ah, my body's like all spilling over the top and people can see me and I just feel uncomfortable and and it's the same genes. So you're like, well, it definitely wasn't the genes. And I definitely didn't gain enough weight overnight for that to be a thing. How many years did it take you to get that particular insight? Oh, many, like 10 years before yeah. I could see how mad that was, yeah. you know. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. Human beings are insane, aren't we? Yes, I mean, of course we are. This this thing that we all need to do yeah. to survive, how complicated yeah. and emotional the issues yeah. around that thing are. But look, have you read Sapiens? Yes. Great book. Really this is great. This Yuval Harari. Great book, yeah. And I, it's made a big difference to my understanding of myself in lots of regards. If you look at the evolution of human beings and how long it took us to arrive at where we are, right, if you say that the, the plot of that is over, it's a metre, it's one metre long, it's only in the final centimetre of that metre that we've lived in groups of more than you know, 20 or 30 people really in cities. And suddenly we're like incredibly densely packed. Food is everywhere. Sex is everywhere. The possibility of sex, whether it's actually happening for you or not, it's neither here nor there, right? So so there's that. And then if you take that centimetre, it's only the last tenth of a millimetre that we've had the internet, which is another game changer, right? So our brains have evolved to interact with each other as best we can in our tribe, to establish dominance within the tribe and for the tribe itself and for your male hormones to serve a function, a good function, a worthwhile function, and for female hormones to serve a different complementary function. And the male function is complementary to the female function, right? Makes sense if you're wandering around in tribes. Well, in the last centimetre... We're in cities and those hormones, they don't make that much sense anymore. They really don't. And since the internet, they make even less sense, right? So your response to a potential sexual partner is to fire dopamine into your brain, whether you're happy and settled or not, right? As a man, tiny bit of dopamine, prep drug, you're ready. Then you're ready for an interaction. This might be sex. And that's really important for the maintenance of the tribe. And the best will in the world, the most woke bloke in the world, Right, still has that reaction to a potential sexual partner. Well, online, if you choose to go that way, and most people do, I don't go anywhere near it now, but um, uh, there are in any given day a few hundred thousand sexual partners and your brain will respond by having a small chemical reaction to that as a potential sexual partner or food one click away. And your tribe is now massive. Your tribe is this vast thing. Thousands of people all at once in reality and online. So, of course, we're mad now. Of course, we are. This is, inc- this is such a difficult and brilliant time for human beings. But the good news is, in 10,000 years, we'll be used to it and it'll be fine as long as we haven't been wiped out by climate change. Well, quite. <laughs> quite. Yeah, 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 yeah. By then, we will all be um, human 
chameleon hybrids <laughs> able to communicate how we feel about what's going on. With through, lovely little hands. Yeah, with beautiful little mitten hands. So, yeah, you know, it's an exciting and a difficult time. It's a difficult time for an addict in lots of ways. But then, you know, when I first got sober, finding a meeting was quite difficult. It really was. You really had to search for them. Now, I can touch my phone and be somewhere with a group of like-minded people who want help and to help each other and therefore me within 10, 15 minutes. It's pretty great. Well, there we go. There's an upbeat. We've, we've strayed a long, long way from the uh, premise of these sure, interviews, man. but I've enjoyed the chat <laughs> enormously. <laughs> um, well, while I've got you here, the yes. next thing that's going on for you is some, uh, some dates of a play. Yes. So I've written a play called The Red, and it's about a sober alcoholic who inherits a wine cellar. Um, his father has died. And he inherits a huge and brilliant wine cellar. And on the day of the funeral, he goes into the cellar and he reads this letter that's been given to him from his dad that says, look, you've got all this wine, but you've also got your sobriety and I'm hugely proud of what you've managed to do. So sell the wine, it'll bring someone pleasure and that's the main thing. And there's one bottle from the year of your birth. It's a 1973 Chateau Lafitte. And I think you should drink it. And I think you'll be fine. Uh, and it's okay if you don't. How do, how do you feel? Like, when, it's all when, right if you don't drink it. When you I think love of you that anyway. character in that position, how does that make you feel? Because straight away, I mean, I, I, I feel anxiety just yeah. thinking about it as, as a sober person. It's uh, uh, I'm really proud of what I've written. That's great. It's, I'm right really there. proud of it. it it's uh, It's... By far and away, the most personal piece of writing I've ever done. And, and I've cast two brilliant actors in it, um, Bruce Alexander and his son, Sam Alexander. They're both RSC guys. Bruce was in uh, Touch of Frost for years and, you know, they're, they're great, great guys. So a real father and son are playing out these roles with each other. And effectively what happens is, is the dad is, is in the cellar uh, through the form of the letter. And every time the son gets close to having the drink, the dad's like, whoa, 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 hang on. Not like that. Yeah. Don't drink for that reason. And every time the son is going, I don't I, I don't drink. This is the point. I don't drink. The dad's like, no, but, but could you? I mean, maybe you're not the same. You've been sober your whole adult life. You, How would you know? And the son's like, oh, maybe you're right. Yeah. Yeah, what the hell? I'll drink it. And the dad's like, oh, hang on, not, not like that. And it kind of goes to and fro. And it's been really interesting. I, I broadcast the play on the radio um, last year, and this is the first time it's, it's been on stage uh, this year. But people who listened to it uh, had such brilliant reactions between people that I know who are in recovery from alcoholism, people who drink more than they're wholly comfortable with but who shouldn't probably stop and people for whom alcohol is like yeah you can drink sometimes um anyway it's a great piece of work really and it's really four proud nights of it. in london four nights at the omnibus theater at the end of july the omnibus theater in clapham which by the way quick plug super cool space it was a library they shut it and the people who now run it went oh hang on this is for the public good this building we're going to step in and make this a public space and as, and they put such great work on there. So, yeah, so we're doing four nights there before I take the play up to Edinburgh and then we're on at the Pleasance at four o'clock every day for the whole of August. And then hopefully it'll have a life beyond that. And then I'm also, um, I'm also still doing, I'm still playing Lucifer as a stand-up, which is, 
I should have stopped by now, but it's too fun to stop. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, a, it was a project. I've been a stand-up for 20-something years, and I wanted to find a way of talking about where everybody's at now, the very divided nature mm. of our social politics and our politic politics. And I thought, actually, from the point of view of this rejected, self-pitying, fallen angel who says, better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven, um, seemed like a good way. So I get fully redded up with horns and the whole bit. It's so fun. Redded up? Is that okay? I get redded up. I get painted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't say anything anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really exciting time. I'm so excited about, about the play, The Red. Um, I hope people come and see it. Well, they will. They must. You must. must, must. You must go and see it. You must come. I will come. I want to see that same reaction to when I told you the the premise of the play, where you. I I mean, I I, I mean, I just think it'd be a distraction to the actors. I think that's such a visceral reaction. Uh, Marcus, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, man. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. And that's that. A, A wonderful stroll down memory lane with Marcus Brigstock. Uh, you can hear previous episodes and previous series with other wonderful guests in the same place that you found this podcast. And do make sure you find Union Jack Radio on your digital radio too for the best British music and comedy, Faulty Towers, David Bowie, you know, the kind of, kind of thing. All right, I'll see you soon. Have a lovely day, unless you listen to this to fall asleep, in which case uh, I hope your dreams aren't too disturbing. This is Union Jack. And we heard you like a bit of the best of British. Well, thank goodness, that's all we do. Does this tickle your pickle? We are young. This is a bittersweet holiday and Now we're talking Union Jack playing the best of British.